You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have uh, Tarun Wedwa. He's the founder and CEO of Day One Insights, a uh, visiting instructor at Carnegie Mellon University College of Engineering. And we're going to be talking about uh, designer babies and the ethical and policy implications of CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas9. So, Tarun, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Doing well. Good morning, Richard. It's a pleasure to be with you here today. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about... Uh, uh, CRISPR-Cas9, you know, for people that don't know what it is or understand what it is, it's starting to appear in the news a lot, but what is it? Yeah, you know, at its core, CRISPR is a technology that's based on systems that bacteria have used for millions of years to fight off viruses. And essentially what that involves is um, is adapting a, a, a system that they use to, to edit a, a gene and basically remove certain portions of that code or insert other areas as well. So really what this is about is editing the code of life. And, you know, to, to put it simply, what we're doing is we're turning life into software and we're making that programmable and editable. And as a result, what that leads to is the ability to change how organisms work, to make new organisms, to really alter the fundamental building blocks of life. And there are many, many questions as to what the possibilities are, what the risks are, what the dangers are, and we're at the very frontier of this. So what we're seeing is this fascinating innovation in bioscience and uh, really the ability to control life in many ways that we've never had before as human beings. So um, are we at the point where CRISPR is powerful enough to have any ethical implications, or is it still uh, is this still going to be a while before you know we're at that juncture and we should start looking at it now? You know, I've constantly been surprised at how fast we get there. CRISPR as a technology was, uh, it's, it's a bit unclear as to who exactly discovered it, who exactly invented, but let's just go ahead and say the technology was invented in 2013 by either MIT or UC Berkeley or a different scientific team. The point is that until 2013, this, this technology was really science fiction. After that point, I, I started following it soon after. I considered it sort of this fringe scientific experiment. I didn't really expect to see many development, developments come out of it. And I've been astounded at how fast the field is moving. So first, you saw early experiments with um, things like trying to make extra muscular beagles, or in China, you know, trying to make pigs into micro pigs basically alter certain features of animals, certain features of plants, that sort of thing. And um, again, that was a bit of a laboratory experiment, but, but things have moved very, very fast since then. 
We already have companies like Google and the, the Gates Foundation are interested in editing disease, looking at mosquitoes and removing malaria from them. And then, of course, the ultimate ethical barrier, which I used to talk about just, just two years ago as um, you know, something far off in the future that we're going to have to deal with, is what happens when these technologies are then used to edit human beings, whether that's removing the diseases from a current living uh, human being and adult, or editing embryos and babies and that sort of thing, and trying to edit what um, you know a person before they're born. And as we saw earlier this year, that that's already happened. We've reached that point. As scientists in China edited the embryos of two twin girls to attempt to remove um, HIV, and later those girls were born. So we have now two human beings walking amongst us, or soon to be walking amongst us, that have been edited with CRISPR. Yeah, was that confirmed? I mean, it, and I guess there's always debate, but was that really confirmed that that was done? Or was that, uh, you know, the, the scientist said he did it, but there was no proof? Um, as far as I know, it is confirmed that it's been done. We've seen several major news outlets. We've seen the Chinese government take action about this. And um, we've seen many scientists in the field sort of reckon with the implications. So um, my understanding is it's been confirmed. Oh, wow. Okay. Hmm. So we're there already, right? So, you know, something that would have seemed so far off in the past is now at our doorstep. That's the only experiment in the world, and he's the only scientist, you know, that went rogue. I would be shocked to, to learn that other governments and countries aren't experimenting with similar things, perhaps not as haphazardly as that scientist in China was, but um, this is coming very soon. What do you think will be the first forays into, um, you know, designing babies? Will it be trying to get rid of disease? Or do you think it'll just skip over that or simultaneously there'll be people trying to create, um, you know, kids that have higher intelligence or better abilities at the same time as some are, you know, trying to get rid of disease? So if we're talking in the next several years, I, I believe the vast majority of the effort is going to be focused on disease because that's where the largest moral imperative to use this technology is. And that's also where a lot of um, the commercial interest is. If we can really break through and create cures for diseases that we're that was not possible with uh, prior technology, that's a major, major advancement for the field of science. So I believe there's a lot of genuine legitimate interest in the disease portion, um, uh, tackling different diseases, removing different diseases, editing, et cetera, creating new drugs, new therapeutics, all of those sorts of things. So um, in the next five years, that will be vast majority of the focus. And what's interesting too, is if you look at the polling data, uh, Pew Research did a study on this, the public is very permissive of using CRISPR for disease because they understand that there is, um, there's a real imperative here that there's real good things that can come from this. When we start talking about things like, you know, uh, enhancing babies, enhancing human beings, adding traits that we didn't have before, that's when the public support starts to drop off. So, uh, you know, again, when we have a technology that's so widely democratized as CRISPR, you know, there was one estimate, um, I believe it was the University of Pennsylvania Center for um, Cognitive Neuroscience. They basically said CRISPR is 150 times cheaper than other existing gene modification, genetic modification technologies. And on the other hand, it's becoming simple enough that virtually anyone anywhere can conduct these pi uh, powerful biological studies. So we have a technology that's cheap, democratized, and then you abstract away the technical layers. All of a sudden, you don't really know what's going to happen. So um, it's easy to say that the vast majority of the focus will be on medicine and disease. But uh, I don't know what the long tail will look like, especially when we put this technology into everybody's hands. We're sure to get a lot of experimentation. That's for sure. Yeah, it's funny. I remember having this conversation like 20 years ago, and uh, yeah. you know, I was a lot younger at the time. And I remember the guy was this old grizzled scientist, and he said, um, you know, when this kind of stuff starts to happen, eventually it'll become the standard. You know, when when enhanced kids are are, are born, and he said, uh, you know, if your kid's not enhanced, then it's at a disadvantage. So it'll be a requirement 
that this happens at some point if you want to be competitive. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, that, that's absolutely the case. You know, I I, uh, I, do, I talk about this to companies and students all around the world, probably um, 40, 50 times thus far. And I do an interesting exercise. I ask them, you know, I present the CRISPR technology, I present the latest advances, and I say, would you, if, if you were in a situation where you're a child being born with, um, you know, Huntington's disease or, or sickle cell, or, you know, something uh, very debilitating and very damaging, would you want to use this technology to help your child? And what's interesting is about 80% of the hands go up. So, 80% of course is for people that want well-being for their child. The remaining 20%, it's not that they don't want well-being for their child. They, they have religious um, objections or they have logical objections saying that, you know, we don't fully understand this technology. We don't understand its externalities, et cetera. And so, and then I ask, you know, well, would you do it to give your child um, extra IQ or extra, you know, good looks? So, you know, you can, you can take the slippery slope as far as you want. It's always one guy, by the way, that raises his hand for the most extreme scenario. One, one man always, there's always one guy in the audience. So uh, the, the point being that we use, it's the same technology, but we look at the use cases very, very differently. So when we are in a situation where our neighbors or um, let's broaden this first, let's say that the US or Germany has one way of looking at CRISPR, and then all of a sudden in Asia or in Latin America, they start to move ahead with um, you know, giving their child enhancements based on this technology. It's going to cause a, a panic of sorts. It's going to set off a national reckoning about where do we stand with this technology and do we really want to fall behind and all the fear mongering that comes with that. And then take that to a more specific level. What happens when your neighbors or other people in your country or your community are using enhancement technologies? Are you going to then put your child at a perceived disadvantage by not giving them the same, um, the same advancements? And let's say we get to a situation where these technologies are hundreds or thousands of dollars or that cheap. These sorts of enhancements are that cheap. Then it becomes a very, very interesting scenario where um, the technical and economic barriers are far less, but we still have the ethical and the logical and the moral barriers about what's right and what are we, what are we as human beings? And all of this really gets to this question about our humanity is, what is it that makes us humans? Our flaws, are they bugs or features? And that's a really, really hard thing to figure out. Hmm. Well, what do you think is the timeline of having to grapple with this for the average person? I worry that it's far more advanced than, than we think, and that um, I don't think this is a 50-year problem. I think that the, the uh, regular people will be confronted with variations of this problem within the next five to 10 years. I think it's coming that soon. And uh, really? you know, the, way, the way we see technology advance, it'll be, it'll be there for certain use cases. And again, we'll, we'll likely start with disease. We'll likely start with debilitating diseases, because that just makes the most sense. But also, you know, I would expect very soon um, CRISPR technologies to be available for pets. You know, we often see medical advances go into the field of pets first because it's far less regulated and, and far more experimental. Again, that's, <clears throat> that's a different story from CRISPR humans. But the point is that the technology will be available and we'll be using it in all sorts of ways. Now, putting aside this whole discussion of editing human beings and all, that's just one of the many discussions we're going to be having about CRISPR. Another massive discussion that I think is going to be, you know, dominating our discourse is um, do we use CRISPR to edit plants and uh, organisms for consumption? Basically the GMO discussion, but in completely different flavors. So um, there's already scientists working on this, using CRISPR to um, remove certain flavors, certain types of, um, of attributes from plants to make them more resistant or to grow better in other places, that sort of thing. So that's going to be a whole other debate. And then, you know, there's just all sorts of other questions about um, do we, you know, is it ethical to create new life forms or to bring back extinct life forms, these sorts of things. So um, it's not just going to be one discussion about CRISPR that we're having. It's going to be a whole lot. And there's this 
question of CRISPR in our food supply is uh, is very very close by. I would expect that to be about a one to three year timeline away before we're really discussing that seriously. I've also read that uh, some people are looking for an antidote to a CRISPR-modified organism, if you can call it that. Have you heard any talk of such a thing? I've seen the same headlines you have, but I don't quite know what to make of it at this point. You know, the technology is so early, so experimental. You know, what's interesting is that we don't even fully understand what we're removing in that we have a limited understanding of where the genes are, what, what, what they are, what they express, and what they do. And based on that understanding that we have today, we're making actual modifications to life forms. So um, there's a lot of unknowns on either side. You know, there's, there's the unknown of how to respond to it. There's also the unknown of what we're doing. And uh, it's going to take quite a while and quite a uh, body of, of literature and science and knowledge before we have a more complete understanding of either side of the, the impact. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, there's not a one-to-one relationship between a gene and, and what it codes for. You know, a gene can code for multiple things. So I think it's probably a huge okay. mistake to do this because you have no clue about the other consequences. I mean, it, it may make it where it just doesn't work. It just creates such horrible uh, side effects. But, you know, there could be situations where the side effects or the consequences aren't uh, observed immediately, and then they uh, they come out later and there's nothing you can do about it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. This is a situation that we're dealing with across a whole spectrum of technologies. It's really, CRISPR is one of the most dramatic and serious examples of this, but we have very little understanding of the long-term consequences of the systems and tools that we're deploying to the world. You know, we, we think we understand them, but they're based on limited backwards-looking knowledge and data. And really, we're breaking new ground left and right. So um, across a whole host of technologies, this is going to be the issue. How do we determine the long-term impact, the safe way to proceed the barriers. And then, you know, this is bigger question of what is good, what is healthy, what is normal, what is desirable? I mean, and these seem like simple questions, but they're really not. Well, do you have any insight into uh, how CRISPR is being used or will be used or, you know, in, in, in your... Yeah, uh, what I see is that um, I'm finding in my research that CRISPR is used for a far broader set of uh, tools and applications than I originally imagined. And that I was really focused originally on um, life and disease and that sort of thing. And I, I understood, you know, that we might also be talking about GMO food one day and that sort of thing. But um, I didn't realize how aggressively it could also be used for altering animals and creating new forms of life and new diseases and, and these sorts of things. You know, um, there's just a recent study showing that CRISPR was used to remove the pigmentation in lizards or um, precision breeding technologies. And then George Church has, you know, done some fascinating and crazy research himself. He's trying to bring back the woolly mammoth in, into the tundra that, with CRISPR, that sort of stuff. He used uh, CRISPR to make 13,000 edits, 13, edits to a single cell at once. I mean, that's a whole new style and form and deployment of CRISPR that uh, brings us a whole own set of questions and all. So um, at this stage, it's really too early to tell. Um, beyond the uses in medicine and the obvious questions around disease, I think it's almost entirely unknown what this technology will be used for. And, it's very possible that um, the key, the killer app of CRISPR, the thing it's used for most when we look back in 50 years is something that we haven't even brought up in this conversation. Well, which is what? <laughs> right, I don't know. <laughs> but um, the, the thing is that um, it's entirely unknown. And then this other question of when you put it into people's hands and abstract away the technical issues and democratize it, as I was explaining earlier, what will they do with it? And it's a, it's a fascinating question. You know, we're seeing this with... Uh, Social media today, but soon machine learning and AI 
and robotics and drones and those sorts of questions. When people have technologies that used to cost hundreds of thousands or millions or more in their hands for any purpose they want, what will they do with it? So um, the vast majority of people will probably do nothing with it. <laughs> Some people will try to pursue certain use cases, certain problems, certain narratives that they feel are important to them or the world or their, their communities, um, whether that's targeting a disease or you know going after a certain um, invasive species of plant, et cetera, that sort of thing. And then you have the people that will want to do harm with this, terrorists, dictators, unscrupulous leaders, um, that sort of thing. And uh, it's entirely unknown what they can do with this in, in that sense. You know, we're, we're talking about the creation of new types of viruses that, that we can't even imagine. So um, I, I can't speculate on what I don't know, but I, I am certain that there are things I don't know and that the, the unknown will dominate the narrative of this technology over the next decade or two. So what's your role in all of this? What do you uh, what do you work on every day and what are you hoping to accomplish? Yeah, so my background is as an entrepreneur, as a uh, researcher, and as an academic these days. So um, I, my background, I, I, uh, I built a startup in the water purification space. I worked in international development. I've worked in cybersecurity. I've done a deep study of digital identification technologies around the world. And I've expanded that in the last few years to include many other technologies, such as 3D printing, robotics, machine learning, and, and now, of course, um, gene editing technologies and such. And, and then I also uh, teach at Carnegie Mellon. Um, we have a campus in Silicon Valley. And so there, um, my role and what I try to be useful for is in helping us as technologists, as, as engineers, as um, people, as society, as business people, whatever group, community you want to look at this from, we're all going to be in the driver's seat of these technologies. We're all going to be uh, deciding how they're used and how they're applied to the world. So my goal in whatever way I can is to help advance this conversation, is to put it in a, a bigger picture to help us realize that it's not just CRISPR that we're going to deal with. It's not just one technology, one problem. In fact, we are in a world, we are in a time where there are so many different technologies advancing um, and they're all going to have massive implications for how we live. So my goal is to help try in whatever aspect to, to move us towards a more positive outcome to get us to at least to think about what will happen when these technologies are put into the world and to plan for some of those externalities, to try to bias these technologies towards the most possible optimistic use cases and outcomes they could be. And in the case of CRISPR, um, there's this other interesting element, which is a cultural dimension. And this is something I study in my technologies, a lot, in my uh, research a lot with different technologies, something like uh, digital identification technologies, biometrics, uh, national ID systems, that sort of thing. They're almost, you know, we have the same core set of technologies that appear around the world, but they are used in such different cultural contexts, depending on the countries and societies that adopt them and what stage they're in with their anxieties and fears are, that sort of thing. And I don't think people realize how dramatically that will apply to CRISPR as well, too, that as people, we see the world through our own lens, through our own perspective. And so I would like to, in particular, advance this discussion around the different cultural dimensions around CRISPR. And this is what directly feeds into law and that law is really built off consensus. And that's built off some sort of agreement as to what the ethics should be. And what I see is that every society, every country will sort of arrive at different conclusions. Perhaps a hundred years from now, we'll all agree on the same set of uh, rules and guidelines and such, and we can move forward from there. But um, the next decade, next two decades, we're going to be figuring this out in real time. So I would like to advance this discussion about cultural context around this technology and and help people understand um, that, you know, that's going to play a huge role in how it develops. How aware are, uh, you know, world governments to CRISPR? How hip to it are they? Do you, do you have any sense of that? Very little in everything I've seen. And then um, you have a, 
some parts of some governments that are obviously you know watching the technology developments and they're aware that things are moving fast but generally speaking um most governments most religious groups most cultural groups are not aware of how fast this technology is moving and again that's because um it's very unclear what's actually happening you know we see we see these incredible papers put out all the time but that's just in the realm of science and technology right now the general public doesn't really pay attention to this stuff until um until we see big news events now the, the situation in china where the, the scientists there um edited a human being that got a lot of attention i, I noticed many people asking me my thoughts on that many people that, that don't follow this stuff so um i believe that story sort of crossed the, the barrier and reached the general public so it, it, you know, it'll be how it is in other technologies and that the, the average public doesn't see the day-to-day -day advancements. They don't see what's happening at the cutting edge, but they do see the big events. They do see uh, the major fallouts, major consequences. If there's any negative aspects such as that, you know, that, that will be known by the general public. So um, governments, generally speaking, are not really aware of the advances. Now, there are some major exemptions to that. And one of the key ones is the Chinese government. They are very, very uh, aware of what CRISPR means and what it can do. And they are moving fast forward ahead with this technology, both in sequencing and understanding the world, and then soon also editing and, um, and modifying the world too. So you look at what uh, Beijing Genomics Institute is doing, with trying to really collect and sequence every organism on the planet. That same data and body of knowledge will be very vital for CRISPR and, and advancing in CRISPR. So, you know, one thing I wanna stress is that there's a huge geopolitical dimension to CRISPR as well too, and that will greatly impact how the technology is used and regulated. Um, any governments in particular that you've spoken to or are showing early interest in what's going on with CRISPR-Cas9? I don't really have anything too interesting to share on that front. I've had some quick conversations with uh, people here and there, but um, most of the time they're just surprised to hear what I'm saying in terms of um, what I'm, the, the advances I'm describing. And if they've heard of CRISPR, they're aware of this technology, but they don't see it as a near-term problem. They see it as a long-term problem. So what, what does the timeline look like, you know, for the next five years? And then if you compare it for the next, uh, you know, 10 years and then maybe 20 plus, what, what's your guess on what we'll see? The next five years, what I expect is a series of research, uh, basically papers coming out, experiments done, um, talking about different diseases and the efficacy of CRISPR treatments for that. So we're already starting to see this with, um, I, you know, I just saw a paper this morning about Alzheimer's and, and, and tackling that disease. And, there was a study last week, um, MIT Tech Review had a story about uh, using CRISPR for, for cancer T cells, that sort of thing. So what I expect over the next, let's, let's say three years, is an intense interest in the medical aspects of CRISPR and what it can do for disease. I think that will be very much the focus. Um, I think you're also going to see a lot more unknown, um, a lot more risks come up, a lot more negative examples come up. You know, we, we just saw this example of the Chinese scientists and what happened with the babies. Um, I would expect several more cases like that to happen as well, too. Perhaps not in human beings, because that's, you know, considered the most sensitive uh, area to experiment on. But in terms of animals, I'm sure there is widespread research being done. I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, experiments that fail that we don't hear about and such. So I think the next, you know, three to five years is going to be a lot of research. We're going to really be looking a lot. We're going to be seeing a lot of headlines about what this technology can do. There will be some commercialization, there will be some commercial applications, probably not in the next two years, maybe next in three to five years, um, but that will take some time. And again, like um, even being used in a, in a clinical setting, the, the liability around a doctor using a CRISPR treatment for a patient is still very, very high. So um, fitting into our existing legal system will take a little bit of time. 
But when the studies are done, when clinical trials are done, when we have real data, when it's gone through our bureaucratic processes towards the tail end of the five-year uh, timeline, then all of a sudden, I think you'll start seeing uh, CRISPR use in real clinical settings, real healthcare settings, and people have it available as an option. So expect by the end of five years, there'll be some, uh, some applications available for the average person to use CRISPR. Again, I mentioned the field of pets may move several years ahead of human beings. That's an unknown as well, too. Um, in terms of the five, uh, the, the ten-year timeline, that's when things get a lot more interesting. I think that's where you're going to see a lot more wild experimentation, things like even uh, bringing back animals that were once extinct. These kind of crazy science fiction type things start will start to become a lot more regular and normal. And you may even see things like you know high school groups starting to do that. You see uh, with SynBio and iGem and these sorts of things that even first robotics, you have teenagers using technologies that a generation or two ago would have been considered the most cutting edge, the most uh, secretive in the purview of governments, that sort of thing. So I, I expect that, you know, 10 and 20 years from now, this will become commonplace. Um, we won't even really think of these things as such drastic enhancements, such drastic uh, options available to us because they will become normalized in many aspects. So um, what the ethical debate will be having in 20 years, I, I don't know, but I suspect that it will be something along the lines of what do we want the human gene pool to look like? What is a human being? What is it that makes us human? What is it that we want and like about ourselves? And what is it that we can change without really altering who we are as people? So, you know, you take a question like um, adding extra intelligence IQ points to a person. If this were even a, a thing, if IQ were something, you know, real and tangible that could be given to a person, let's say hypothetically that was the case, or whatever measure of intelligence you want to use, what does that mean exactly? Does that make a person happier? Does that make them more productive? Does that make them uh, a better contributor to society, it's entirely unknown. And, you know, what happens if you, you're able to give your child maximum intelligence? Does that necessarily mean they're going to live a better life? I mean, how many happy geniuses do you know in that sense? Um, and this is just one example. We're going to have this conversation across a whole host of, of, of uh, attributes and, and traits. Well, I mean, it seems like there's a, a big time lack of respect for life itself. You know, if you're going to create, if you're going to mess with different creatures' genes and you know, try to bring back extinct species that may be extinct for a good reason. And, you know, if you're talking about high schools uh, making their own biology and messing with this stuff, that just, uh, it just seems like it's a big uh, troubling thing that's ahead. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting way to put it, respect for life. Um, in, the, in the technology and, and the technology community, I could say that uh, there is this belief that, you know, oftentimes you find, I don't want to say everyone believes it's not by any means, but especially in these cutting edge communities where people are, working on this stuff day-to-day -day basis, there is this belief that perhaps that we can improve upon nature's design in many ways. And perhaps that's true, but, but it requires almost a level of arrogance to think that you can even um, do those sorts of things effectively. Now, there are some scientists that, that are at the cutting edge that really do believe this and take it you know, a few steps further, and they're going to be in the driver's seat of this. You know, you mentioned, we mentioned the scientists in China. It was a small group of people that pulled that off. You know, we, we broke through a major ethical human scientific barrier there, but it was maybe less than 20 people involved in the whole thing in that you had the scientists, his team, and what looks like a lot of encouragement and support from US-based scientists as well too. Um, so, you know, you have a small group of people working at the cutting edge, making huge ethical decisions on behalf of humanity. Nobody asked us, nobody checked with us or, you know, got our permission or even asked our elected representatives what they should do. And perhaps that's not the best way to deal with things. But my point is that we're gonna have small groups of empowered people making decisions on our behalf. And um, we're going to have to rely on their morals and their ethics and their guidance. And it's a, it's a very uncomfortable situation for humanity to be in. Hmm. Um, 
when you when you collaborate with other people that are thinking about this problem, what's what's the general consensus? Do you see that there's a a great sensitivity to what could happen, or do you think there's just a, a such a high degree of uh, optimism that they're like, all right, let's just try it and see? I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot more optimism than there is, um, you know, worry or, or desire to ban this technology. When I speak to my uh, my policy friends, we talk a lot more about what a global ban would look like and that sort of thing, how we can stop it. When I talk to my technologist friends, um, that question, it comes up, but it doesn't really come up first. It doesn't really come up in the first 10 questions we discuss. That's a lot more about the possibilities, the systems, the tools. Um, so there's, there's definitely many different worldviews around how this can be used. And um, there, there is an optimism bias. Again, like um, in my research, I went, I remember I went through at one point and I looked at all the major inventions of war, everything from the machine gun to the airplane, you know, what have you. And I, I was able to find a quote from every inventor essentially stating that they believe that their invention will be what leads to world peace. And as we know, that's, that's not how things turn out. So there is this optimism bias, especially with inventors, especially with scientists, especially with technologists. We, uh, they and we want to believe that, that our creations are going to do well, do good. And, and um, if, if anything, Silicon Valley is a case study in where this goes wrong. Um, you know, look at Facebook, look at all of these, these companies here that are now dealing with a decade or two of havoc they've caused and they've yet to acknowledge, you know, much of the damage they've done. And they're just starting to do that now. And we're just starting to see what the toll of that looks like. So, um, you know, in a way, you don't really want your most optimistic populations leading the cutting edge of this research, but that's what we have today. And so, um, you know, on the positive side, hopefully that will lead to aggressive experimentation. We will be able to free ourselves of many of these horrible diseases that have plagued humanity. We can really make major advances. And, you know, you look at what we mentioned earlier about using uh, CRISPR to, to remove malaria from mosquitoes. Um, if we can do that, if we can achieve that, and assuming we're able to control the negative externalities of that, which is a whole different question, that's a major advancement in international development. That's a huge leap forward for the world. I mean, think about how many people malaria kills and how deadly and horrible and how much suffering it causes. If we can remove that from mosquitoes, we're talking about a massive boon to humanity. So, um, you know, there's, there's applications all over the place, and this is by no means a, a, a tragic or a scary story, but it is... Uh, it is full of unknowns and risks and possibilities, and um, it's going to be a very, very interesting few years ahead for us. Definitely. What are some uh, resources for people so they could read and understand what CRISPR is and some of the implications? You know, what, how could they take this further if they're interested? Sure. I would recommend just looking in general news sources and biasing yourself to the word to the most highest credibility sources you could find. So, you know, publications like Nature, especially in such a cutting edge, such a fast moving field, look for, you know, raise your bar in terms of the credibility of the knowledge you read uh, on this subject, because there is a lot of bad information out there. There is a lot of, uh, you know, the mass media in general kind of just re re uh, regurgitates and repeats details and conclusions made by others. So, um, in a space such as this, where there is so much unknown, it's, it's uh, vital to look for, for high quality information sources and to move forward from those. So I don't have anything specific to point to, and it's so fast moving that whatever resources I could give you would be outdated next year by the time uh, a future listener is checking out this podcast. But bias yourself to high credibility studies and watch how they change over time. And that, um, again, we're figuring this out as we go right now. So um Look for research as it unfolds and follow stories and understand that it's not one development and it's done, but it's a series of developments unfolding over time. I wonder if anyone will name their child CRISPR. Maybe George Church <laughs> will adopt a baby and adopt a baby and he'll name it CRISPR or something. You know, who knows? 
Right. I, I know he doesn't strike me as the adoption type. He's more the create-your-own-baby type, in my opinion. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, very good, Tarun. I, I appreciate you coming. And then uh, how can people learn more about you specifically and what you're working on and get in touch if they'd like to do that? My pleasure. Absolutely. The best place to reach me is my website, tharunwadla.com, first name, last name.com. Uh, you can contact me there. You can email me there. I uh, have all my writing posted there. I write the forums. I write the CNN business and a couple other places. Um, so all my writings are, are there. I also have many of my talks posted online, too, um, around social, legal, ethical, security issues, international development, those sorts of things. So that's the best place to reach me. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you there. Okay, Jaren. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.